nonprofits supporting nonprofits. That's just the best. Um, thank you so much. And a big, huge thank you to the people in this room, the volunteers, the donors, the people that say yes when we ask you to host a field trip, the people that say yes when we ask you to write our annual report, the people that say yes and yes and yes, because the Brand Lab now is a movement. And what is so... What's so exciting is that maybe some of you have heard we've been getting noticed. And so the time is really now to reach our vision. We've been working hard as a team, all of us here together, to make sure that what we do works and this idea that way back when John Olson had really has proof of concept. And it's time to triple our impact. So today, we're one organization with multiple markets. Kansas City has launched. I'm sure many of you have heard me talk about barbecue at this point. Been down there a few times. And Kansas City is just on the horizon. So a big round of applause to you for making sure that what we believe and what we've been doing is getting noticed. So... As I said before, it's time to triple that impact. You know that every other year we've asked you to be fearless with us and release your demographic data because we're going to have a conversation tonight about the small things. But we do know that the numbers matter. So many of you in this room will be getting an email from me or Brian or someone asking you to release your demographic data so we can measure our impact over time. And with that, I would really love to introduce one of the newer members of our team, Suzanne, who is our fearless director. She comes to the Brand Lab with experience in youth work and public policy. I'm so proud to not just work with Suzanne, but to learn from her. So please give her a warm welcome as she introduces our fearless programming. Oh gosh. Thanks for being here, everyone. Um, thank you, Ellen, for that really kind introduction. Um, I just want to start by reiterating her thanks to our sponsors, our supporters, the Walker, um, our moderator and panelists, and our board. Um, and I want to give a very special thank you to the Brand Lab staff who have helped me execute this year's Fearless Conversation. Um, and I am so excited to be here because this is my first Fearless Conversation ever. Um, and before the panel begins, thank you, before the panel begins, I wanted to share just how, how we arrived at this topic. Um, so when Miley, the new classroom director, and I started in July, we had a lot of questions around the unspoken rules and culture and um, how the Brand Lab's strong values played out in the everyday and in our policies. Um, and so the Brand Lab needed to change ourselves to think beyond ourselves so we could do better. Together, we have worked on enhancing our policies and becoming more transparent. So our team is pretty small, it's six people. Um, but, so it's easier us, for us to implement those kind of changes, but I know that small orgs aren't the only ones who can create that cultural shift. Um, what worked for us is action, like policies, and teams um, that consider their position, their power, and relationships to create that positive change. We all have a part in this. Um, in this example that I just gave, Ellen, our leader, now CEO, um, <laughs> recognize her power, and use it to take what she heard from our team to co-create policies together. 
and the Brand Lab team, um, policies isn't easy. We went back and forth about different contested topics, but in the end, that created transparency and built uh, relationships and trust. And Miley and I, as newbies, um, we leaned on each other to garner that courage to speak up. Moving from symbolism to systemic change is a combination of passionate people plus that thoughtful action. In the last few years, we've seen many people try to tackle that cultural change. For example, there have been pledges such as CEO, diversity and inclusion commitments, and different types of mandates, like Rooney's Rule or Mansfield Rule, uh, which require organizations to look at certain percent of diverse candidates before selecting someone for the job. But those are only pieces of the puzzle. Tell me about a time you had a resolution with no plan. For me, it usually lasts to the end of January. Um, or how does it feel when someone tells you you have to do something because it's the rule? Not so good. So the question we get asked a lot is, who should take action and what is that action to take? Moving towards inclusion is a movement to examine the shared perception of how things are done around here, plus the action. Everyone can take action, and once again, you have to consider your privilege, your power, and your relationships that you have. Sometimes people think activism and action are one romantic grand gesture, it just happens and that's it. However, in reality, it's the small, small actions that lead to a larger movement and change. We often forget just how, just how challenging ourselves to really listen or to have a conversation with others is action. Fearlessness isn't something that we're just born with, well, most of us anyway. It's a muscle that we continuously build with practice. So tonight, please practice with us. Stay and listen to our panelists and question others and question us and be challenged. In your programs, there is an insert with five conversation starters called Cocktails and Conversations. So post-panel, we'll have an extended mingle for you to stay and ask those questions and answer those with others. Um, we'll also have some heavier apps and the bar will remain open. So now, let's turn into the real stars of the show. I'm so delighted to introduce Brant Williams, our moderator for tonight. Brant is a reporter with NPR Metro Unit and at NPR, Brant has extensively covered city government, public safety and courts, race and justice, and livability issues in the city of Minneapolis. Brant also grew up right here in Minneapolis and graduated from the U of M uh, with a degree in speech communication. So Brant, thank you so much for being here. Thank and you, take Suzanne. It away. I'm gonna try to put my degree to work tonight in speech communications, and I'm gonna introduce our fine panelists who are here, and you guys can just start coming up as I introduce you. We have Rosin Chevrolet. She is the Vice President of Human Resources, Talent Acquisition and Training and Learning and Development for Best Buy. Welcome. Keith Mays, he is a professor and chair of, at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Welcome, Professor Mays. Dale Nitsky is the Chief Executive Officer of the Ovative Group. Welcome, Dale. And Ingrid Saba, she's a board member for the Brand Lab. She is also an intern at said Ovative Group. And she's also a student at the University of Minnesota, a fellow gopher. Hi there. Thank you. Is everybody comfortable? Everybody got some water and everything? All right. And before we get this conversation started, I want to just get a little feedback from everybody just by a show of hands. How many of you work in an organization where there are other human beings? <laughs> All right. So everybody here. How many people, show of hands, work in organizations where there are human beings who may have a little different skin color or gender than you? All right, just about everybody here. 
Okay. And by show of hands, any, does anybody know like why we still have a problem with that sometimes? No? Okay. Because if somebody does have the answer, just let me know. Because, you know, like me and the professor can just go down the street. We'll kick it, get a glass of cider, and talk about Black Panther some more. <laughs> yeah. All y'all are welcome, too, but I'm just saying, I will, you know, I will just head out. You know, We're talking about inclusion. You know. Well, yes, yes, yes. Everyone is welcome down to the bar with us. All right, and speaking of inclusion, thank you, Dale. I want to start this conversation by... Let's define these terms that we're going to be talking about tonight this, so we can understand where we're all coming from here. So I'm going to open it up to everybody. And Rosalind, I'm going to start with you because um, you get paid to answer all the hard questions. This is interesting. <laughs> There's pay? Yeah, what does... Yeah. Oh. oh, not for this. Okay. Not sorry. for this. No, okay. no, no, no. Okay, no. go ahead. Uh, what does diversity mean at your company at Best Buy? Uh, so we define diversity... Uh, probably in the traditional way that other companies define it as well. It's gender diversity, it's racial diversity, it's also the diversity that you can't see. Uh, it's your um, how you were brought up, your diversity of thinking. Um, but we have a fun way of, of describing it as well. We say diversity is, you know, we invite everyone to the party. Uh, and inclusion is we ask you to dance. So I actually like that definition better hmm. than the textbook definition. I like that. I like that. Dale, what about you? It, you know, very similar. We look at it, um, you know, in, in exactly the same way. I think that this um, would kind of demand an accountability to one another, um, which creates this, you know, inclusion because everybody's in. And we have a foundation or try to build a foundation of trust where people feel like they can be themselves and, um, you know, make a difference for us. Sure. And and I've I've... Before the show, we were before the presentation here. I was asking Ingrid, who works with Dale, uh, if you would be just go ahead and feel feel free to just let us know from your perspective as somebody who works there at Ovative Group as to no what does it feel like? What does diversity and inclusion mean to you as somebody who's coming into the workplace? Definitely happy to spill the beans on Dale. <laughs> um, <laughs> Definitely, diversity has been defined, and exclusion is the experience at being innovative that I have personally um, been able to have with Dale and other people that are also in the office space. I think it comes in um, a lot of different forms, but it is the respect that you get from the senior leaderships, and we can talk about that later when we talk about uh, symbolism, but the hierarchy is deconstructed, and it's about the experience with the people. Sure, and Professor Mays, um, from from your point of view, these terms diversity, inclusion, get thrown around a lot. Give us some perspective on on what what you see that as meaning. So I'll, I'll just uh, uh, talk You're about on. the way in which this is a weird kind of uh, setup. Can I? <laughs> I feel like I'm, my back is too close. <laughs> I'll, I'll go back. I'll pivot back and forth. There you go. Um, the University of Minnesota and all the universities define diversity in, in various ways, but certainly racial diversity and, and gender diversity is, is at the top of the list. But they also are beginning to talk about regional diversity. So they want students to come from different regions of the country, of the world. And certainly uh, the emphasis has been on greater Minnesota uh, because they think that uh, students may not be as well represented at the youth they are from Brainerd or Duluth or from southern Minnesota. So there's a regional piece to this as well, geographical piece to it. Uh, but I think that uh, as diversity has spread, the concept of diversity has spread, I'm often uh, left wondering if we are sort of 
de-emphasizing or losing uh, some aspects of diversity and not to privilege one diversity over another, but uh, are we uh, doing diversity work uh, all in the same way? Are, are, are they proceeding and at the same pace? That's a question I'm left wondering. Yeah, and, and, and inclusion is another one of these terms. And I know Rosalind just kind of touched on it a little bit. And, and also, anybody else, feel free to, to jump in if somebody says something and uh, that you think maybe needs to be corrected or added to. But I want to get uh, uh, another perspective on inclusion. You may have a diverse workforce. You may have people of color working at your shop. But what does it mean to feel included? Ingrid, what does it mean to feel included to you? To me, I feel like to be included is to be asked uh, simply just for your thoughts and for your ideas and for your contribution. Um, as an intern in a really competitive uh, environment, you don't think you're going to get asked that question. I had the really incredible experience. My first week at Ovative, um, I was sitting late decorating my desk, of all things. People who know me, I take it seriously. Um, <laughs> And uh, Dale came over and asked me what I thought about Brand Lab expanding into STEM um, and doing a couple different things with their partnership. And it was in such an impactful experience uh, to just have my thoughts and ideas be valued in that way. And I think inclusion is the experience of being invited to share your thoughts and ideas, especially with senior leadership, because um, when they value ideas, it kind of goes from everywhere. Mm. And I think for other leaders who want to um, bring up other people, it is just asking everyone from every level what they think. That's my experience of inclusion. Sure, and Dale, does that, is that something that um, if it has to come from the top? Does it have to come from folks in your position? Or should other folks on your management team and, and others, just whoever they are in the in company, keep that spirit going? Yeah, I think it's important that everybody plays that same game. So mm -hmm. I, um, you, you know, certainly a, a leader plays a role where people can see and there's a role modeling effort, but to hold everyone accountable and, and expect everyone to, to kind of play that role is, I think, more important because you rely on a single person. Things can disappear pretty quickly and unravel. And especially, you know, we've gone from, you know, like one person to uh, 100 people and that um, to rely on a single individual just doesn't work. Um, and certainly in a larger corporation, it's even much, you know, much well, and, more and people leave, right? I mean, people right, leave these right, positions, right. so it, it has to be more than just an unwritten, one of these kind of unwritten things. Do you um, have something written that says, yeah. that, that kind of spells out how to, to enforce that spirit of inclusion? I kind of laughed when Ellen asked me to be on a thing about policy, because we, we don't really have a lot of policies. <laughs> um, we're working on it. But well, you're a small uh, company, yeah. right? I mean, um, but, um, but but I think it's like everyday action and doing doing it every single day mm -hmm. is the creates the policy. So whether it's written or non written, you know, it, it becomes the action every day that that matters. And you can have a policy, but if you don't do it, who cares? Mm -hmm. um, you know. So I just don't. Um, you know, I'm not a, a huge believer on a lot of things written down. I'm a huge believer in doing. I would also add that we do mm -hmm. have some things written at Ovid. <laughs> <laughs> um. I just haven't been exposed to them yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. One of those things being uh, one of our best practices is top leadership mindset, where everyone's empowered to think like any leader on the client side or internally. Um, and that just, again, brings that air of inclusion in that everyone has a space to speak at the table.
Yeah, Rosalind, I think you were going to jump in. Go ahead. I, I was. It's important to have uh, those things written down, and I know you'll get there, Dale. Uh, but, <laughs> it, but it is important to have those things written down. The expectations need to be clear. And especially when people are joining an organization, that's an opportunity to level set on what our expectations are, how we want to show up with each other and for each other. But to your point, that comes and goes. So with orientation, I get hit with a lot of stuff, you know, what I'm expected to be in the company, what you want from me, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'm six months in. It's the examples that people set in ensuring that people feel included that are most important. So it's good to have it written to level set expectations, but it's even more important to have people bringing it to life through their actions and how they interact with one another. Sure, and uh, when we talk about uh, another part of the, the program, we're gonna be digging into the idea of that we wanna get past sim symbolism and get to, to actual systemic change. Can you have systemic change without having some type of, again, I'm, I'm gonna come back to policy and having something written and followed and there being a, a culture that values that which may have started in a document somewhere in the company handbook but has been elevated to where it's become almost like the word of god for this company here's what we value here's what we do um so i'm i'm interested in making sure that when we talk about you know getting past these these symbols can you do that without having that type of strong cultural support of what may be a written policy. Does that make sense? I know I rambled a little bit, but I, th I think anyone feel free. Go ahead. No, no. I, I think that sometimes um, institutions have a way of of creating documents and and policies and protocols about what they are doing, and they may pad the numbers and they may say that we have twenty percent of X at the organization and at the company, or we have 5% of this group or 30% or of that group, but oftentimes it doesn't sort of match up to reality. And um, I think that a lot of organizations pay lip service to particularly this issue of diversity and inclusion. And, uh, and oftentimes we have to peel back the layers to see exactly what's there. And, and I think it's in the organization's best interest to promote itself in a way that's favorable, but I don't think that oftentimes uh, uh, that may that may not be the reality sure. on, on the ground. Yeah, go ahead, Dale. Yeah, um, so I think, and again, I'm coming from a smaller company perspective, which mm -hmm. you know it's a totally different situation. Um, I, I, I know our like our, our balance of men to women was in, imbalanced early in our, our our life as innovative, and we um, you know I we intentionally said we're going to change that. Um, we didn't create a policy around it, but we were, mm -hmm. you know, small enough and could control this the situation where, you know, now we have more women than men, and you know, like, and um, you know, in the pace that you know you commented on the pace of different initiatives, like we have not, um, you know, we are struggling and and we're trying a whole bunch of different things to um, elevate the number of people of color in our our, our organization. Um, but and we aren't we aren't anywhere near where we want to be, but now we're like very intentional of focusing on that. And, and what does it, what does intentionality mean in your company? Um, I, well, one you know, talking about and stating mm -hmm. that we're going to make we're going to change, um, so that that's a, a big big deal. And then looking at like how do you change the, the people on your team? You know, we again early in our days we you know 
friends of friends create, hey, this person's great, let's hire that person. And mm-hmm. it you know, creates this easy way to, to find talent. Um, but that led to um, you know, n- not the right range of diversity in the organization. So looking at your sources of talent and really challenging where are we going, what are we doing, how are we measuring this, are we effective, what different groups we have to talk to, how do we, how do we change what we're doing because what we're doing today isn't working. Um, so there's a, like a, just a energy around that that mm-hmm. makes a difference, I think. Sure. Um, it, Rosalind, you are in um, talent acquisition of at Best Buy, and I'm cur- just curious about, um, and you, you kind of mentioned this a little bit before in your first answer about the types of diversity that are important uh, to, to seek out. Uh, and, and they include other experiences that a person has in their life. Just give me some examples of some of the things that you think are important, the type of diversity outside of race and gender, um, which you also want to include in, in your definition of diversity. Well, I think it starts with um, ensuring that you're not fishing in the same pond and expecting something different. And so uh, one of the things that we challenged ourselves with um, with our uh, university recruiting program is to get outside of the Twin Cities and outside of the Midwest and look for talent um, that was interested in moving and living potentially in an igloo. Uh, but <laughs> coming to, <laughs> I don't live here. <laughs> but you all probably do, so I hope I didn't offend. Hope I didn't offend anyone, <laughs> but it's always gold here. Uh, but but it was a way for us to say, look, we've got a great company. It's a great campus. We're a great team to work with. It's cold outside, but don't worry. All the other stuff that's great about the Twin Cities um, will overwhelm you. Just come and give us a try. Um, and looking outside of the area, what we found is we have people who are far more interested in trying something different and doing something different and see it almost as an adventure. And so that's given us the opportunity then to broaden our range of experiences. Um, People who come from different countries, from different walks of life, um, from different family types, um, not just racial, not just gender. Um, And all of that, and I call it the sticky messiness of being a human being, all of that is totally welcomed uh, because it enriches everything else that we do. And I think if we don't put forth that kind of effort and looking outside of our normal fishing pond, uh, then we limit ourselves to uh, how broad and great our diversity can be in our companies. Sure, and um, Ingrid, what about you? I'm curious about this. When we talk about this Midwest, uh, the pond that, that at least I've grown up in here being in the Midwest and Minnesota for most of my life, I think there are certain things that, that people assume about other people. We have this, everybody has their own definition of Minnesota nice and that Minnesotans will say hi and welcome you. They just won't invite you to dinner at their home or something like that. Um, uh, give me your sense of how do you understand that, that type of uh, Midwest mentality? And do you think it has an impact on um, other people uh, that, that you know who are out there going and trying to find places to work? Maybe some people who, who might be uh, think they don't want to work here. Maybe they want to go out state to work. Definitely, um, it's been an exciting time in my senior year. A lot of my peers are applying to New York and Seattle and trying to get out of here, the igloo, um, <laughs> quickly. Um, but I've decided to stay because I think there is a lot of good to be found here. Um, Rosalind, when you talk about fishing in the pond, 
it is a small pond, but I think we are kind of charged to look a little bit deeper. Um, when you talk about looking at different forms of diversity, I, uh, you have the adventurer, and I have been privy to my peers who are incredibly ambitious and are just looking for the right opportunity. So I definitely advocate highly for that, um, for the audience, of course, to like meet the ambition of the young people that want to get in, and they're the diversity that you're looking for, honestly. Um, yeah. That's a good point. Um, and Professor, about, um, I, again, I want to follow up on this, this Midwest kind of, uh, the, I don't want to say milieu, that's such a, that's, that's a college word, I'm sorry, <laughs> professor word. Uh, the, the pond that we swim in here in, in Minnesota, uh, I, I'm curious at your experience as uh, a professor, you deal with students who are coming here, maybe coming from out of state, um, how do you help uh, young folks who come, from, maybe come from other parts of the of the country, to kind of adjust to, especially young students of color, adjust to what they're going to find here in in the Twin Cities area? So helping students who come from other states is not the 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 hard. It's not the uh, hard part of my job. The hard part of my job is really uh, helping students who are from the state, particularly students of color. And especially black students. We have a problem at the University of Minnesota. For every two black students that come in, we graduate one. So it's one thing to talk about diversity and inclusion, but we also, have, and that's, to me, that's a, a recruitment conversation. But we have a retention problem. And so before they can even get to you, so you can hire them, they can have the kind of careers that Ingrid talked about, we have to ensure that they graduate, that they leave the place. And that's problematic because on the one hand, I don't think the university is that interested in, in ensuring that a certain population of its student body graduates. And I'm gonna really just say that because you can spend a lot of time on the front end trying to determine what kind of student you want. And the University of Minnesota just did that probably five years ago, deciding that it had a, a retention problem, a graduation problem across the board. We had only graduated about 65% of its students across the board, wanting now to compete with some of uh, its Big Ten competitors like Michigan, and they gra graduate 70%, you know, not quite as high as smaller liberal arts colleges or, or private elite Ivy Leagues that graduate 90, 95% of the student body. But the U wanted to up its standards. And in doing so, it wanted to go after another kind of student pool they call high ability. So that meant that they were going to be exclusive about who they brought in. Closing down General College had, has, had, has had a devastating effect on who comes in, who gets in, and who gets out. And so the question that I have, and I'm always, always searching for answers to help students get through, because inevitably, every semester a student will say, well, you know what, I may not be able to finish the semester because I don't have money to park my car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so small things like that, that the university doesn't necessarily address. And so many of our students have so many issues when it comes to just you know, staying uh, at the institution, uh, doing well, and then finishing. And Ingrid is part of, I see the, so if I say one out of every two, so I see the ones that graduate. I know who they are. They take my classes. But also, I see the ones, <laughs> oh, so you see the numbers, you hear about the statistics. I also see the ones that don't finish. 
they're also in my class. And I have to try to help them as much as I can as a classroom teacher navigate the system so they can finish and they can be in a position to be hired. You know, I'd be remiss also if I didn't um, also bring into this conversation the aspect of accountability. Who's responsible for when those students don't graduate? Um, who's responsible for when those employees who come in from out of state, those, those high recruits from uh, out of state, African Americans, other people of color, they don't feel like they can stay. Where's the accountability? Where does that start? You know, Rosalind, how about you? I'll start uh, with you. It, it starts with each leader, um, and it has to start from the top. Uh, our CEO has done an amazing job of being very clear about what his role is in diversity and inclusion. Uh, to the extent that when he started, uh, Hubert Jolie, uh, if he snuck in, he should let me know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did invite him, so he may sneak in. Uh, but he, he started with the company, and one of the first things he said is, um, we need a more diverse leadership team. And he already had a leadership team, so you already had a bit of awkwardness and nervousness amongst the leadership team going, so does that mean me <laughs> or not me? Um, and fast forward to where we are today where um, his executive team, our executive team is 50% is uh, female. Um, that takes effort, um, and it takes being on purpose about that effort. And so it started with him. And now you have his leaders and other leaders looking to his example of how he purposefully looked for talent, how he purposefully talked about what he wanted to do, and then did it. Um, and so the accountability starts at the top. And then once it does, although people may not think it's easy, um, so that might, be the not, might not be the right term to use, but I kind of feel like it's easy to use that as an example for them what I can do. Mm. I've seen it done, and so now I can do something. Oh, that's, that's your playbook? then let me read your playbook so I can do the same thing. Um, and then once that starts to happen at leadership, then individual people become accountable and responsible as well. But it's got to start at the top. Otherwise, it becomes this uh, grassroots effort. Um, and you know, my opinion on that is it takes quite a while for grass to grow where there is no seed or fertilization. Hmm. So we definitely need to ensure that things are happening from the top down. Yeah, and Dale, what about you? Where's the, um, what's your your stance on accountability? Did yeah, everything no. go through you? You're the one who says, hey, look, if it's not happening, come to me. Yeah, I think it definitely the leader has to, you know, engage and, and believe and set the tone and the expectations. I, 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 I agree with you, but I also think the, the leader has to hold the grass accountable and that every 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 blade of grass matters, right? Every single person and how they how they interact with the broader team has as big an effect because those those are the people that you know everybody's working with every day, and that that makes a huge difference on whether people want to be want to stay or want to go. Um, you know, we intentionally try to create a lot of social dynamics within the within the company to create bonds and um, enable people to get to know one another as people, um, which I think helps um, create that kind of energy where people, um, you know, support and and um, understand one another a little bit better. Um, it, it, well, Ingrid, I want to ask you, I mean, as, as part of the, the, the company, how important is it for you to, to see that as being a part of the, the culture of this particular organization that there's accountability 
over here, and then if you see that something isn't going um, the way it should be going, uh, not only do you feel like you have the the ability to, to speak up and say something, do something, and have an impact, but right down the hall is Dale, mm -hmm. and you can go say, hey, I'm seeing something that isn't quite matching the value set in the company. Definitely. I think as a young person coming into the workspace, it's definitely something you have to work on for yourself to be empowered to kind of speak up. And it's a great um, experience when the people around you also elevate your voice in that way. Um, if you have a com an issue or a complaint that you're going to be heard with that, again, with that top leadership mindset, that you're also being seen to lead just as thoughtfully and execute just as well as anybody else. So there is that accountability piece like on yourself and with the people around you. I would also add that um, you should be mindful about who's being put in the hot seat to be accountable. I think when people of color come into the space, there's already um, an innate pressure on them to perform and do really, really well, um, especially in comparison to their peers that may not have the same challenges um, in and around their lives, if that makes sense. Um, so definitely, again, always inviting people in to ask those questions um, and to keep people accountable through that engagement piece. I think it all kind of works together. Do you feel a pressure? Um, and, and, I, and I've heard this in, in my own experience, I've had as well, where you're, you're kind of seen as the uh, instructor, a teacher, to let your white colleagues know, don't touch my hair. And, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. I mean, and, I, and it's a common complaint that I hear. Um, do you feel like there's pressure on you to, to, to be the one to have to educate everybody else who, who may not understand certain things, uh, the, the things that you experience? Definitely. There is pressure, but I think for me that's pressure that I've kind of stepped into and I own. I am very cognizant of my peers who they don't want that pressure, and that's a choice. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also for the people around them to also understand that they don't have to teach. I'm currently in a situation in a class where I'm expected to teach the course. It's not my class. I don't have to teach the course. Um, and that unconscious bias comes in when you have expectations put on people of color in the space. And I think, um, in my experience, I own that choice. And we all own that choice to be a teacher when we want to be a teacher and to not be a teacher when we don't want to And professor, be. is that some of the, the definition you've heard of in what inclusion is for, for young, for young African-Americans is you're included to, to teach everybody about your, you know, um, what Ingrid was talking about. Is that, do you think that's what people accept as being part of the idea of what inclusion means? I think so, because uh, oftentimes people of color are isolated. So I always tell my students when they graduate, when they do leave the University of Minnesota, uh, it's all rarefied white air out there. It gets real white. And it's, it gets real white at graduate level programs, and it gets real white in nonprofit and in the private sector. And when you are only one of two or three, there's a lot of pressure on you just to exist, just to survive. And so the question becomes, as we look at those numbers, as they tick up every two years, I'm always, I, I, I really do want to know why there's a revolving door of, of black and brown professionals. You know, we come here, we talk about folks coming out of state, they stay here four or five years, they're gone. And so they can never uh, create a sense of community because, again, you can't do it with one or two or three people. And we need to address uh, the lack of culture that exists throughout the Twin Cities. It's at the U. Students complain about the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a critical mass of folks there to make uh, to, to make a life at the university uh, 
or what it could be. Some of these people are coming from Atlanta, D.C. They're coming from black me black and brown Mecca's chocolate cities, as they are called. Mm -hmm. And so when mm -hmm. they get here to the <laughs> Twin Cities, I'm going to do this for one, two, three years. I'm going to get experience, and I'm gone. And then people like me who have been here 15 years, uh, I, 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 I used to have uh, friends who are no longer here. They're gone, right? Mm -hmm. So... And so it's hard for people who are here, who've been here for a long time, and it's hard on those who are just coming into the, sp in the workspaces or in the educational spaces as well. So inclusion has to be about the pressure that's put on employees of color, students of color, to try to not only educate, but to, to try to exist in the space just to, to make it to the next to make it to the next year so they won't leave. You gotta be able yeah. to retain the talent. And um, uh, in a couple minutes, we're gonna open up to some questions here, and we're going to do a little. We're going to use some technology to get your questions up to the panelists. And um, so, while we're continuing this conversation, if you got a cell phone with a browser on it, hopefully you're already hooked into the Walker's Wi-Fi, uh, so you can look up and, and put a little program on your phone, which you'll be able to text in questions to us. And we're going to display them up there. So make sure you spell correctly your questions. Um, so <laughs> yeah, this is a test. So just go to uh, slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com. And what you're going to do is you're going to see a prompt that's going to have uh, code to enter. It's going to be hashtag FC18. And that's the code you'll be able to use. You'll be able to get in. Uh, if you really want one of the panelists to uh, answer a particular question, just go ahead and, and direct it to them. So we're going to start doing that. So I figured, well, just I know you're thinking of questions. You're, you're, you've got some things you want to say. So just we're going to get that. that process rolling. So, uh, Rosalind, I think you, you wanted to jump in on something else that's... Um, um we were talking about the, the pressure that, yes. uh, that people of color feel to, to be educators. When, it, uh, when I was early in my career, and I was one of, one of the only women, one of the only people of color uh, in um, what is, you know, consumer electronics is a predominantly male environment. And uh, even in retail, uh, at the level that I started with the company, um, I was one of. Uh, and initially, I did get the questions, and I did get the curiosities. And I started thinking to myself, first I was like, you know, really, this is my responsibility? <laughs> like, you want me to, to do fill in the blanks for you? Um, but then I thought, well, wait a minute. Uh, you're curious for a reason. It's because you're trying to understand me. It's because you're trying to understand people who look like me. Um, and I seem to be a safe place where you can ask those questions. So I shifted from thinking about it as the pressure of having to be the person to explain uh, to being privileged that you actually feel comfortable and safe bringing your questions to me. Uh, and once I did that mental shift, you know, I just I didn't feel the pressure anymore. But initially, you know, I think I put a lot of the pressure on myself mm. when people were really just being curious about you know, what does it mean? How do I fit in? What should I say? What shouldn't I say? Things of that nature. Sure, sure. And um, Professor, there was one other thing that you, you mentioned with when African-Americans, especially African-Americans who come here from, from other uh, larger cities where there are much higher populations of African-Americans. Give me some, what are some of the things, that, common complaints that you've, you've heard about the lack of culture here? Is it a matter of, you hear concerns about where to get my hair cut, where's a good church to go to, where it may be a good place where I can go 
um, get something decent to eat that has more than just paprika in it for a spice. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are just certain things that, that folks are interested in. And it's not just black folks who like spicy food, I'm telling you. But, I mean, um, I've heard that. I mean, uh, I've been at Minnesota Public Radio for 18 years. There have been great folks who have come and gone, and I've heard many of the same concerns. Are you hearing the same thing from from the people that, that you've you've lost the people you know? So it's a double whammy. So the, the spaces may uh, be predominantly white, and that may be fine. I may be able to deal with that. But when I leave work, where are the black spaces? So it's the social, it's the leisure, that's also uh, problematic and difficult to generate. Because if I was able to recharge my blackness, if I could just plug it somewhere, once I leave work and there was uh, a place that black folk hung out or Latino folks sort of congregated or Asian folks, I mean in mass, I'm not talking about a handful, I'm talking about in mass. And there were people who were reflective of my culture, my community, and I was able to get that 24 hours or 40, 48 hours after I left work, five o'clock Friday, and I was able to get that all the way through Saturday and Sunday. Come back to work in the white space, oh well, I'm back here again, and so I have to suffer for another five days. <laughs> but once I, but if I leave work at five o'clock and I can recharge, and I, if I can recharge on the weekend, this may be an okay place. So what people are complaining about is that they don't even have that. So yeah. I'm gonna have to pack the biggest suitcase I can find after four or five years, and I'm gone. And I, that's that's almost every year, I'm I'm losing folks that I may have met because they just can't take it anymore. Yeah. And uh, there's some. Um, we're starting to get some questions coming in, and thank you everybody for for sending them. And I think let's just kind of ease on into some of these because folks are are tapping into what what people are saying here. So let's go to this is a question here. Uh, you can read up here. Uh, what can companies do to diminish this this revolving door for people of color? Um, and anybody who feels like they want to jump, um, Rosalind, uh, are there things in particular? I know we've talked a little bit before the show about some things that Best Buy are doing. Are there other things that you've seen either in, maybe in other companies that you would like to see Best Buy do to help stop that revolving door? Yeah, I, I think there's a responsibility to bring that sense of community into the company too so that you're not just looking for it after work uh, or on the weekends, but that you feel that sense of community and connection at work as well. Because once you build that network, then that exposes you to things outside of work. And one of the things that we've recently uh, started is this uh, session called Candid Conversations, where we're actually bringing in topics and speakers and having these, what I really call, courageous conversations. Uh, with a multitude of people in the workplace, but in an effort to get them to network and start to share with one another and start to build some commonalities amongst each other. Um, and I think that effort helps people to then feel not just glued to the company, but glued to the community. Because we're talking about things that are happening outside of the company, but that impact our lives as people of color or as women, for example. Um, so I think that's certainly something that we can do is be more intentional about how we bring the community in in order to get people more involved and get them more integrated with each other at work. So hopefully they take that outside of work too. And I would also add that transparency um, and that hiring and recruitment process is also really important because people 
fall off after two or three weeks or something when all the great stuff that they heard during the interview doesn't match up to what they come in to work day to day and experience. Um, so letting a talent come in and walk around and chat with other people and get a good feel of the space is like also really important um, when you're trying to make that perfect match because it is a relationship that you want to have last for a long time. Um, and what better way than to start with a great date? Well, and here's so a, so a, a great date with the ERG. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the university they have these recruitment. Uh, evenings with uh, families of color. So uh, Latino families, uh, black families and others, they bring them in. And so inevitably one of the students may in my class say, oh, yeah, you was on a panel maze. So why you let them promulgate that BS? <laughs> how, how great the, uh, you, the you is in terms of people of color. You know, this dynamism and so they put us up on panels. And so I said, maybe I, st I should stop accepting these uh, these invitations to be on these admissions programs because it is about, it's a showpiece, right? It's about we want to recruit them and tell them how dynamic and great the U is. Not only it's academics, this is a great academic institution, but we have to sell the culture piece. And so the students will get in and say, listen, it's not measuring up because you guys said that there was this for students of color, that. This. And so I think you're right, I think, but th there's a shell game uh, I don't know if pr uh, organizations in the private sector do it, but certainly uh, universities do it because they want the bodies. They want the students to commit to come to the university, and they may oversell the institution at certain levels, particularly at the level of culture, and that, that, that vibrancy in the culture may not necessarily be there. Yeah, I mean, I think, yep. you know, uh, I think to Ingrid's point, transparency is so key. You know, I, there's no benefit in BSing people when you're recruiting them. I mean, we'll, I, like, you can, you know, they'll come and go, and it, it's just, it's, you know, it's terrible for them, it's terrible for the company, it's terrible for their peers, and it just, it just, you know, I, I don't understand exactly why that would happen, right? It doesn't make any sense. And you know this, the the core thing is you want to recruit and retain great talent, and the focus on retention, um, you know, starts with trust in the beginning, and um, that demands transparency in that recruiting, and um, you know, really having a honest dialogue with people. Yeah. So I want to get to another question um, from somebody in the audience here. I'm going to post it here, and I'm going to read it. Um, this is uh, Brandon was talking about. No, it just disappeared after I clicked on it. Oh, here it is. One problem area for people of color is being able to state opinions and disagree in this Minnesota nice corporate environment. What's your experience and what can be done to fix it? There we go. Let's get fearless here and let's, let's talk a little bit about that. If you have an issue, do you feel, um, uh, and I know Ingrid, you're just kind of getting started in your, in your career here. Um, do you get a sense that if you did have a problem with somebody that um, that you feel empowered to, 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 to speak up and say, hey, you, that was inappropriate, or you know, somebody who's approaching you um, from a place of ignorance, do you feel empowered to, to speak up and you think you'd be backed up? I would like to think I'd be backed up if worse came to worse. Um, I definitely have experienced a lot of that. Well, I'm experiencing that right now at the University of Minnesota, where mm -hmm. there is a lot of unconscious bias and Maybe professors haven't had certain trainings or things, but at this stage in my academic career, I feel empowered to speak up um, with my peer group and what's going on right now. Like societally, a lot of us can't stay quiet anymore. Um, but I also am cognizant of the angry black woman trope and all of that stuff, and a lot of us are afraid to speak up. And I think it's on the individual to, 
I don't know, charge themselves with that. I have charged myself with that, um, that given the scenario or the case, I can't stay quiet anymore and I will speak up. Um, I think, but that's also on the individual and when someone does muster the courage to say what's really kind of bearing on their heart, um, it's on the person that they're speaking to to kind of hear them out. And I think people in Minnesota have been doing that better with time, just as a national conversation has kind of risen. I feel like I've been heard better than I have in the past. Uh, I know those conversations are tough though. I mean, you can be having a conversation with someone that you've maybe you've worked with for a while, but something you are pushing back on really gores their ox, you know what I'm saying? And, and they also climb up. Gored ox, but yeah. I think yeah, yeah, I yeah. Uh-huh. That's, that's a public radio term we use a lot, goring somebody's ox. Um, Is that during the donation cycles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> during pledge drive, that's what we but I mean, is it, um, is it really, though, something that um, can companies help better train or prepare people as we're encouraging people to speak out and speak their truth and speak their ex- experience to each other? Obviously, do so respectfully, but uh, to, to feel supported and to, to, to do so in a way that um, is not a, uh, destructive in any way. Is that something that, that you think companies should be able to, to, to train and to prepare um, workers for? I, not only do I, I think they should do it, I think it, it's become a requirement um, that we actually put forth that effort. And it starts with creating safe spaces. Um, so creating environments where people can come in and have tough conversations, having people who usually don't uh, feel comfortable having their voice heard, giving them a platform or a subject matter in order to do that. So that when I'm in a one-on-one interaction with you and I disagree with you, you don't take offense to that because you've heard my voice in other places and in other settings. I also think it's important to have air cover. Um, And so knowing that people who work with you, who know you, uh, and who are invested in your success also have your back uh, gives you a bit more courage to be able to sit up a bit taller and say, no, I am going to have my voice heard in this setting because I feel confident there, there are enough people here who care about me and care about what I'm trying to do in my career to support me in that. Um, and you know, I, I said before that I, I, I don't live here. I, I haven't had the privilege of living here, but I have had the privilege of traveling here for years. And so I bring my New York swagger attitude, talking with my hands fast, you know, <laughs> head moving, all of that, you know. <laughs> so I bring all of that with me. And, and there was a time, you know, where I would have people leave interactions with me and say, oh, my gosh, she's so intimidating. And meanwhile, I leave the conversation going, that was a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. That, that was awesome. Well. I got what I needed, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think a part of it, it is also learning each person learning. How do I still bring the best of me, but not have you walking away feeling like I just crushed your spirit? Yeah. Um, and at the same time, how do you make space to hear me and know that that's not my intent? Well, I'm going to put a question up oh, on the board right. here. Um, I'm going to keep because we got some. We're getting a lot of questions here, and I want to make sure we get as many people in involved as we can. So this is a, another anonymous question, um, and this is someone who is asking us. And this is I need to scroll down so I can read this for everybody. Oh no, it's the one before. I double. What can I do as a white person to educate myself on diversity without putting pressure on my colleagues of color to answer my questions or lead a discussion? 
Professor Mays, is this something that you've, uh, do you have those discussions with, uh, say, your white students who are like, well, we've had this discussion here and now I'm feeling like I don't know how I should interact or, 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 or hold these conversations? So in, in the Department of African American and African Studies, we do have a diverse uh, student body, uh, a lot of white students, a lot of students of color, and some of the classes are like that, 50-50 for the most part split. So the white students that show up, that enroll in the course, are for, for the most part are ready to have the conversation. And so they've been taking these courses, they're interested in social justice issues, mm -hmm. they may be oriented already to a certain kind of style of discussion, a flavor of the discussion. Every now and then, you'll get a student, a white student, who may come in who may either be conservative or may not know much about the issues, and they will make statements that um, have to be modified. Uh, <laughs> or, and I don't have to do it all the time. The students in the class will do it lovingly, you know, yeah. in, a, in a very loving way. So because gotcha. you talked about the safe space, mm -hmm. my department is a safe space for students of color to just have these these courageous conversations, or just to vent, or my classrooms, just to vent. And because they say, Maze, you don't know what it's like. Yeah, you teach classes 50-50, but when I go to the next class, it's all white. And I, I forget that, you know, being a person, a faculty member who teach teaches what I teach. I'm, I'm always assuming that the classes are pretty mixed, and they're not. And so the students of color, they come because uh, they want to they wanna respite from some of the stuff that they have to do. Yeah. Right well, I've got a question for Dale here. I want to get in. We've just got a couple more minutes left. Or do you want to go a little longer than 7.30, or we want to just, we'll, we'll, we'll cut it off in a couple <laughs> minutes here. Um, this is for Dale. Dale, you're an industry leader. You are a white male, in case people did not notice. <laughs> what do other white male executives, and there are many, need to do to make a difference with inclusion? You were speaking for all white males. All oh, white males, yeah. All right, wow. <laughs> I apologize to everyone for my <laughs> answer. Um, you know, one, I think, just to recognize where you're coming from and be intentional to try to, try to help and support change. I think, um, like, I've struggled, um, you know, with some of these conversations because, I, you know, I don't know how to handle them and, like, what, what, how do I address that? And... Um, you know, so to be courageous, or I don't know if it's courageous, but just to feel confident enough to have those discussions and learn and understand that, you know, your perspective is a little, you know, you, you come from just a different place and it's important to learn. Um, I also think, like, I think in terms of like one person at a time, you know, so like you can make a big difference in a person's life and that person, you know, brings somebody else into to the company or the, you know your life and then that adds and that adds and that adds so we're trying to like in our in a smaller environment you know taking one at a time is really important and you don't don't think you have to like you know it's impossible to change the world all at once so think about it in terms of time but be committed like you can't you can't just stop all right I hey would Dale, also uh, add oh. okay real quick for you and then we are going to wrap it up sorry no problem uh last note um I guess I'm not Dale, but um, in the <laughs> means of transparency um, and speaking back to your um, discussion earlier about speaking up and not wanting to be disruptive or something or not, uh, yeah, 
being disruptive. I think it's an also really important to be bold and for people to speak up because um, you always get feedback when someone's out the door about how awful this was and how this sucked and how I, hate, I hated that. Um, if you seek out that unpopular opinion early, you can do a lot to change it um, live and hopefully retain that talent long term. Well, thank you for that, Ingrid. And uh, we're going to wrap it up now, but of course, we're all going to hang out a little bit longer. We're going to go up back out into the lobby here in a few minutes, and so we can just mingle and, and you've got lots of other questions. Feel free to come up. We'll, we're just going to chat some more about this. So, but, but first, before we go, I am going to thank Rosalind, Dale, Keith, and Ingrid for being on our panel. Give them a hand. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Stick around. Need the mic one more time. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much for being part of this panel, volunteering your time. There's a lot of good starter conversations here. There's a lot of great food and alcohol in that room. Um, stick around. And I think one thing to really is illustrate that I heard tonight and that I hear over and over and over again is, you know, we want to, s to know what the magic formula is. I saw that question. Why isn't change happening faster? Listen to what Dale said. It's those micro moments that we make. It's building that community. It's sticking with the brand lab long term. I met kids in high school. They have jobs now, right? And so you've been building this with me and building it with everyone in this room. Let's just continue this, continue this with a cocktail and some food. Thank you for being here.